G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The fact that Christine Holgate was forced to resign from the top job at Australia Post for giving executives $20,000 Cartier watches as bonuses for a job well done was an anomaly since in other government departments executives were given monetary bonuses while staff were given a wage freeze for six months. The experience of workers at Australia Post during COVID was not at issue in the scandal, but we spoke to Brooke Musket from the CPSU, Community and Public Sector Union, which covers administrative workers at Australia Post, for some insights into what has been happening for workers. We follow that with a word from Matt Purcell from the ITF, the International Transport Federation, perhaps the only protection for international crew during COVID against unbelievable levels of exploitation. But first, some union news. In national news, Michael O'Connor has stepped down as the National Secretary of the CFMMEU. It is believed that Christy Kane from the Western Australian branch of the MUA will take on the position. The Morrison government is under fire following revelations that 58 foreign seafarers were granted COVID exemptions, allowing them to fly to Australia and work on coastal trading vessels despite local workers being available to do the work. CSL Australia, the largest operator of dry bulk coastal vessels in Australian waters, was granted permission to fly the seafarers from the Philippines to Australia on a chartered Nauru Airlines flight, remembering that the Philippines is a COVID hotspot. The foreign seafarers will be employed on vessels that primarily carry bulk materials for the construction industry between Australian ports. Under the Abbott Turnbull and now Morrison government, CSL Australia has been allowed to remove four Australian crewed vessels from the coastal trade, replacing them with foreign registered flag of convenience vessels, employing exploited seafarers who can be paid as little as $2 an hour, said Maritime Union of Australian Assistant National Secretary Warren Smith. This year alone, the federal government has issued CSL with more than 160 temporary licences allowing these flag of convenience vessels to undertake coastal trade between Australian ports. Rather than undertake the costly and risky recruitment of workers from overseas, the federal government should have rejected these travel exemptions and instead required CSL to hire the highly skilled Australian seafarers who are ready and willing to undertake this work, Mr Smith said. The Professional Firefighters Union of New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and Western Australia is challenging the Prime Minister to answer why professional firefighters who provided critical support and resources to combat the Black Summer bushfires were not consulted as part of the Bushfires Royal Commission. The firefighter unions made a joint submission to the Royal Commission. However, professional firefighters were not asked to give evidence before the Commission or engaged in the preparation of the final report. 
Leighton Dury, New South Wales State Secretary of Fire Brigade Employees Union, said it is commendable that the Commission sought the views of a variety of people. However, we see critical failure in not engaging with our members. More people from the Australian Space Agency were called to give evidence than professional frontline firefighters. While we welcome the action to prevent the destruction and devastation of the Black Summer fires from happening again, this sees some of the most critical evidence of professional firefighters left out of the Commission's findings. In Victoria, 140 dairy processing workers at Lactalis Bendigo plant covered by the Electrical Trades Union, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union and the United Workers Union started an indefinite strike action on November the 5th. They want wage parity with other lactalis sites and an assurance that if the company cuts and runs that it will not mothball the factory to reduce competition from other milk processing companies. Lactalis has formed when it comes to playing one group of workers off another. Workers at Bendigo have heard threats many times that the company will shut Bendigo if their wages are the same or higher than other lactalis workers. But workers are sick of the threats and want to close the gap of wage disparity with other sites owned by the same company, UWU delegate Tom Check said. Still in Victoria, nurses and paramedics who transport patients in Royal Flying Doctor Service Ambulance in Victoria have started an indefinite campaign of industrial action to stop the introduction of a two-tiered wages system that will reduce the wage of new staff by $4,000 a year compared to current workers whose wages will be grandfathered. The union members who provide non-emergency transport have voted to ban overtime, write slogans on their vehicles and return back to base for their meal breaks rather than eating on the road. Victorian Ambulance Union Secretary Danny Hill said his members had been on the front line during the COVID-19 pandemic in Victoria, transporting patients to hospitals. The sentiment was echoed by Nurses Union State Secretary Lisa Fitzpatrick. In Canberra, Calvary Hospital cleaners walked off the job after receiving an offer of an extra $0.05 cents an hour from their hourly rate of $22.02 despite wages for Calvary cleaning staff having remained unchanged for almost three years and $3 lower than wages for cleaners at the nearby Canberra Hospital. More than 60 people took part in the two-hour strike on Monday. United Workers Union Lyndall Ryan said, given the increase in demand for declining services during the pandemic, a larger pay rise was needed. In New South Wales, 18 workers covered by the AMWU, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, working at the Panasonic Hussman subsidiary, have been on strike for over 10 days. They have been pushing for a wages increase of 2.5% over three years and that an ongoing issue of bullying at the site be dealt with fairly. Uh, G'day guys, my name's Nick Warner. I work here at Hussman Panasonic. Um, I've been here for 28 years, which is more than half my life. Hi, my name's uh, Greg Day. I've worked here for 32 years. At the moment, we're trying to get a better deal, but um, Panasonic doesn't seem to want to come to the party at all. In, in the past, when we've had negotiations, we've always talked and worked something out, but they've just left us on the grass. Lots of guys here are struggling to... Um, support their families but there's not much we can do about it until Panasonic want to come and talk to us. How do I pay bills? How do I pay my mortgage? At the end of the day 
I tell my family I'm trying to get a better deal for everyone and for our family and for future. We've come to work through all the way through COVID where all the office staff have stayed home. I just don't think it's real fair that they haven't looked after us. I put my heart and soul into it. I do more hours than I should. I don't get paid for it. I think my dedication speaks for itself. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. The Australian Post Office has proven its worth during COVID, but it wouldn't escape anyone who used the service that at some stages Australia Post employees were being told to make deliveries on weekends in their own cars. And if you stopped to chat, that it wasn't because they were being paid the big bucks. I spoke to Brooke Musket from the CPSU Community and Public Sector Union who cover administrative workers at Australia Post for some insight into what is going on for workers. Okay, so the Senate Estimates Committee uh, discovered that the Australia Post executives were given uh, very expensive uh, Cartier watches, uh, which just puts salt on the wounds, doesn't it, in relation to what's been happening to uh, administrative and clerical workers at the Australia Post during COVID. Can you talk to a little bit about what's so uh, egregious about these opulent gifts? Absolutely. So as you mentioned last week in Senate estimates, it was revealed that Australia Post gifted themselves, senior executives gifted themselves up to $20,000 worth of Cartier watches. That's at the same time as our members, unfortunately, are being forced to accept a pay freeze. Their workload is absolutely going through the roof in response to the pandemic. They're at the front line. They're low-paid workers. So those Cartier watches actually add up to almost a quarter of our members' yearly salaries. So there's a real difference or disconnect between what the uh, senior executive staff are prepared to pay themselves in comparison to very low-paid workers on the front line. It's been very strange too. In your um, uh, submission, the CPSU submission to the uh, uh, committee, you outlined some responses from experiences of some of your workers uh, when the COVID uh, hit, where they were being forced to take annual leave and, and long service leave entitlements and others were, were, were forced into leave without pay. Can you talk to us about what happened to your workers then? Absolutely. So initially, um, when COVID became a serious issue across, across across Australia, the major issue with Australia Post was that they forced our members to take leave. Um, they said that they were in financial difficulty, that our members needed to take leave to sort of bear some of the burden of that financial difficulty. What we found later was, in fact, um, Australia Post has uh, reached record profits. Um, and then, you know, after our members returned into the workplace, senior management said, well, in fact, that didn't actually save us any money at all. So it was very counterintuitive to force people out of the workplace, particularly in a time when um, the need uh, for Australia Post services is so high. 
So not only did they force our members on to leave, they refused to rule out redundancies, but also another thing that we're finding that's come out of the pandemic, unfortunately, is a significant increase in customer aggression in terms of um, you know, our members in the call and co contact centres, the call centres and contact centres. And Australia Post has been really slow to deal with that too. So there's quite systemic issues across Australia Post. They've actually probably created the problems because uh, the Australia Post has a uh, important role in Australian society's consciousness, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's, a, it's an institution. Um, it's a government-owned entity. Australians want Australia Post in Australians' hands. What they don't want to see is very, very highly paid executives gifting themselves Cartier watches or very exorbitant bonuses of up to $60 million. Now, this is part of an ongoing arrangement across... Oh, well, internationally, there's been this push to uh, streamline postal services under the guise that... Uh, People aren't using letters anymore, and uh, that immediately goes into because, as you said, the Australia Post is actually run by the government, and it's an institution, and it's it's covered by legislation, and it's got regulatory standards that it has to cover. Now, recently, they were allowed to reduce the uh, uh, how often they needed to. Uh, deliver letters, which of course then has a kick-on effect to how many people are being employed as posties. But for, instead of uh, five days a week, they are allowed to do it only two days a week. Now, the, when the pandemic happened, that of course meant that there was backlogs, weren't there? But the organisation didn't respond as a business would. Yes, that's right. So they are looking to reduce the services, or they have, in fact, in terms of letter delivery. There has been skyrocketing parcel delivery across Australia Post. We're concerned that, I guess, COVID-19 was used as the excuse to introduce this alternative delivery model, when, in fact, it's something that the uh, organisation had been looking at for some time. And given that it is a government-owned entity, our, our, you know, I think Australians broadly want to see the same level of standard that has always applied. So that's been quite difficult for people to, to accept. And there hasn't necessarily been a good communication to the broader community about those changes to service delivery, which has then resulted um, in the customer aggression that um, our members are facing, unfortunately. So customer aggression on top of wage freezes and no job security is incredibly problematic. So what they've done is hired a whole lot of casuals and they've made people who were on secure contracts take uh, uh, leave rather than redeploy them into the areas where they were most needed. That's right. So they, that's exactly what happened. Um, and we had said from the outset that, yes, you know, if it, it's looking that, like you need to sort of shift your resources around the organisation, we would work with you to achieve that. It just seems nonsensical that you would send your permanent workforce on leave. Um, some of our uh, some of our members didn't actually have leave, unfortunately, uh, but were sent on leave, and then you put hiring casuals to undertake that critical work. That work was there. There was always work for our members to undertake. So it was a very unusual decision by Australia Post, and I think that. That's why this, uh, you know, I guess the revelations around spending money on Cartier watches and big bonuses at the same time as you're treating your workforce 
so appallingly is just so galling. Um, our members are absolutely shocked and appalled by the decision-making of Australia Post. And because of that, we're actually seeking a full investigation into the board, um, as well as you know, we're asking for Christina Holgate to actually resign, not to step to one side. Yeah, it seems sounds like to me. I mean, as people said, you know, they've been seeing uh, postal workers delivering uh, parcels on the weekend in their own cars. That's exactly right. That was one of the things that was um, actually asked of the workforce. Now, we represent your clerical, as you say, administrative and call centre workers, but our understanding is that staff um, outside of our areas of coverage were actually asked to use their own cars and deliver, deliver things in their own time. So how can you marry that up when you've got, you know, executives being having access to, as I say, $60 million worth of bonuses at the same time as frontline workers who are keeping Australia Post running are being asked to use their own cars in their own time to deliver to Australians. And also, since it is actually, the employer is actually uh, the federal government, this business about saying that they're all about jobs also seems to be a bit uh, askew if as well. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, well, no, I think I'm pretty certain that what Australia needs now is secure, safe jobs after the, and we're not even through the pandemic. Um, that's what we need right now. And Australia Post is a huge employer and we want to see those jobs retained and protected. Um, we don't want to see a reduction in service delivery. We want to, we want to make sure that frontline staff um, have jobs into the future, but particularly during this difficult time. It's interesting because uh, just before I let you go, because I'm sure you're a busy person, um, I, I, there was this a fantastic little uh, bit where where it was pointed out that it takes 11 days for express post to reach regional and remote New South Wales. Nothing express about it. Um, obviously, they're trying to damage Australia Post's fantastic uh, uh, record. Yes, Australia Post employees, the frontline employees, do a really great job in sometimes very difficult circumstances. And, you know, Australia Post kept running through through COVID-19 and that was because of the workforce. And, um, and it's, you know, when there is decisions made at the higher levels to reduce services or to deal with um, things in a particular way, unfortunately, it is the frontline workers that, that generally cop the brunt <laughs> of that decision-making. So, um, you know, we're saying maintain the service standards, make sure that workers have secured jobs and ensure that they're also remunerated and respected um, in line with what is provided to senior executives. And I'm not saying <laughs> tartier watches, I'm saying modest pay increases and probably more importantly, job security. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are finishing the program with a look at some of the issues for maritime workers on flag of convenience ships. It is the ITF, the International Transport Federation, that battles for them when they arrive at port, desperate for their wages, safety from COVID infection, and in some cases during COVID, just the right to go home after 12 months at sea. Matt Purcell. It's been very uh, hectic in relation to um, seafarers uh, trapped on vessels. Uh, we've got that current uh, figures at the moment are somewhere between three and 400,000 international seafarers who are, are forced to extend their contracts. So this has been a work in progress internationally, but 
very much so in Australia. And I think we've um, collectively around Australia, I think we've done a fairly good job in uh, getting these seafarers off. And uh, of course, we've had to uh, use the uh, assistance of um, governments and government authorities, but a lot of lobbying, a lot of pressure. But uh, it's a continuing thing until such time that uh, we clear, clear the backlog of uh, this uh, problem because uh, we had a vessel last week uh, in Melbourne or yeah, last week or the week before, the Metis Leader, where uh, four crew members, I think it was, have been on the ship for 15 months. So that's un totally unacceptable. The ship was detained and um, that was subject to... Um, a lot of international news because it was one of the biggest uh, ship owners in the world, MYK, Japanese car car vessel. So, but not even near immune from uh, from this problem. Well, for an international rating, the usual swing is about nine months on, and then they have um, they're supposed to have time off, uh, two or three months off, and then they'll go back. But in the current crisis, uh, you know they're going well well into the you know, a year on board the ship. And then, then we have the officers who are usually four to five month contracts and they're also in, um, in problems as, as far as that goes. Why has it been worse during COVID? Is it because they haven't put any systems in or it just seems easier for them? Well, it's a combination of both, Annie. I think it, it, there's, the systems aren't that good. Um, I think in Australia, the best system is the, uh, the Queensland model. Uh, Maritime Queensland have done a, a terrific job in getting people on and off the vessels. But in other states, we've had trouble in Victoria. Very difficult there as well. But uh, it's also a good excuse, I think, for some ship owners to say, oh, look, we tried to get these people off, but we couldn't get them off. And in most cases, we find that that's a, a pretty lame excuse. If you really want to get someone off a ship, I mean, we were getting people off ships here in Victoria at the height of, you know, and we're having eight, you know, when they're having seven, fifty, eight hundred cases a day. So it's not a, it's not um, a case that you can't do it. It's a case of you've got to try and do it. And I think that's where some of these bigger ship owners, some of the some of these big name ship owners, are um, the worst culprits. How do you find out about uh, this um, overrun for the uh, workers? Do the workers get on uh, to you? They will come. They will come to us, and uh, we will alert the Australian Maritime Safety Authority and uh, some of the uh, unsung heroes, if you like, of the ITF flag of convenience and port of convenience campaign are actually our delegates on the job because they they find out. In fact. We find out more stuff through um, in the initial contact when the ship's tied alongside, either from the people tying uh, the linesmen or the tugs or, uh, or when our wharfie members go on board the ship. The crew, and it's not just because of me or anyone else, it's because of the tradition here in Australia for the last, since I think uh, even before the, we joined the ITF in 1966, I think, but even before then, uh, there was a lot of um, protection here in Australia for um, international seafarers. So there's a history there and uh, a lot of international seafarers will save, save up their complaints or their problems until they hit the shores of Australia and then bingo, they, 
they open up and let us know what's going on. We've got a really good network of people around the country um, who we can rely on and ask them, and they, they don't <clears throat> never say no. They always go, go and try and assist the seafarers. Australian Maritime Safety Authority was saying that 14 months on a ship was acceptable. We, we've argued that that's not the case. And then uh, one of the, the worst people we probably thought would be on our side is, a, is the flag states. The flag states are pretty weak as in, normally, but only just recently the Panamanian flag state uh, issued a statement saying that no one shall stay on one, one of their flag vessels for more than uh, 12 months. So that's been a great help. And uh, we're pushing that forward. And uh, really, uh, now AMSA have dropped back to, rather than 14 months, they've dropped back to 11. So, you know, uh, 11 is still a long time, but it's a lot better than 14. At the present time, there's about uh, 16,000 vessels in the, in the world covered by ITF agreements. Then there's another 15 or 16,000 covered by national agreements with our affiliates. So that's probably about half the world's fleet is uh, covered by agreements. Uh, what's, it, what's it mean? It means that if you've got an ITF agreement, at least you're going to have decent working conditions, uh, you're protected, that uh, you're not going to become uh, uh, like in the old days, thrown overboard, they used to say, but uh, things like that. There's no... There's no um, with a vessel that has no ITF agreement has nothing, basically. Absolutely no protection, uh, even the insurance. Each vessel is supposed to have a P&I uh, protective and indemnity insurance clause for all the seafarers. We currently have a situation in the Red Sea where none of those vessels are covered even with a P&I agreement. So we had, we're having trouble in the Black Sea where every year there's about 100 or 150 ships sink. No one ever hears about it and, and there's no, no coverage, but... So it's very important to have an ITF agreement. First of all, our main objective is to get ships covered with ITF agreements. When I started, there was only about 2,500 vessels covered. Now we have about 16,000. So it's been a, a work in progress. But um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is to make sure they're compliant. And then the other problem we've got is uh, when a ship hasn't got an ITF agreement, um, and the, and the crew are being treated badly and they're not being paid properly, we have to use all the uh, political um, and industrial muscle we can to try and get some, some result for those crew members. That's it for Stick Together today. If you want to catch up with our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or on iTunes or wherever you get your uh, podcasts. You can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. My name is Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. And until next time, stick together and keep safe.